Hey everybody, it's Brennan. I want to tell you about a special event coming up on October 30th. Flame Tree Press presents Flame Tree Live and Spooky. On October 30th, climb aboard the bone-chilling, fun-filled rides of Flame Tree Press's first annual Creepy Carnival, featuring readings, panel discussions, live Q&A, special swag, giveaways, and more. Patrick here. Panels will be featuring authors such as Catherine Cavendish, V. Castro, Hunter Shea, Jonathan Jans, Tim Wagner, and more. The event takes place on Friday, October 30th, 2020. It's going to happen at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 8 p.m. British Time. You can expect it to last about five hours. And you can RSVP today at flametr.com slash live spooky. Hope to see you there. Headspace. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which includes Alexa. All you have to do is tell Alexa to play Dead Headspace podcast for the latest episode every Monday and Thursday. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we are joined by... A uh, very special guest. He is the author of Writing in the Dark for our 50th recorded episode. Please welcome Tim Wagoner. Hello, Tim. Hey, how you doing? Tim, usually we like to start at, by asking everybody, what got you into horror? Now, anybody who uh, picks up Writing in the Dark is going to get a very, very detailed answer in the preface, but... I was hoping you'd still be willing to kind of walk us through your journey. Sure, no problem. You know, when anybody ever asks us questions, like regular non-horror fans, they always hope it's some kind of traumatic event, <laughs> you know, that you had way back in the past that twisted your psyche and turned you into a horror writer. But, <laughs> you know, for me, I think it was, uh, I've always been fascinating with monsters ever since my my dad would sit me on his lap and read dinosaur books to me. And even before I could read, I learned to to recognize the shape of each dinosaur's name. Uh, so it wasn't reading, but it was kind of like reading. And I was fascinated by the idea that these monsters like actually existed. They existed like in my backyard and that, you know, in a way it was kind of like living ghosts sort of, you know, they were real, but you know, they're not there anymore. Uh, and so it just kind of went from there. I think, you know, my parents let me watch just about anything because back in the you know late sixties, early seventies, nothing really bad was on TV. There's no cable. So any kind of monster movie that came on was not, you know, too intense. And so I just fell in love with all of it. That's excellent. I'd, so monsters is your thing from the get-go. Now, uh, at what point do we go from the more innocent monsters to kind of the uh, closer to R-rated slashers and um, the uh, introduction of Cable showing you those really hor- truly horrible things? Probably when Halloween came out. The, the first one, the original one. So that's like, what, 78, I think, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a friend of, uh, it was my, my sister's boyfriend at the time, took me to a theater and he's like, we're going to watch this movie. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm like, it's going to be scary. And he goes, watch. 
And, you know, the right in front of us was a row, a row of young girls and they screamed at everything. And it was just so great to watch it with, uh, uh, you know, with an audience. So, yep, there you go. And I think that, you know, that, that probably was what got me into it. I mean, Fangoria helped, too, because I was a big fan of Famous Monsters magazine. As soon as Fangoria started, I had to get it. And so then I'd have to seek out these movies that they would, would be writing about, too. I'm jealous, man, of you and so many other horror writers because I, I never got into Fangoria. Um, still haven't. I kind of missed that. But like you, I got into film as a young kid. And Halloween was one of them for me. It, uh, <laughs> I was born in the 89, so I'm a 90s kid. So I kind of, uh, you know, got to see all the see the whole series in a row pretty quick back to back. Did mm-hmm. did you go to the theaters to watch any other Halloween movies? Was that your go to series? Yeah, I think I've, I've seen uh, I think I saw all the way through five in the theater and then uh h2o i saw in the theater and then the uh most current one so i think i i think i skipped six and <laughs> i don't know seven eight whatever i don't know the numbers at that point so but i've seen most of them in theater yeah yeah uh the the new the remake one i don't know about you but i i like it because it kind of felt like it was uh a continuation a real halloween too, which is weird to say it like that because I like Halloween too, but for a remake or whatever the hell they called it, it, it felt like it was true to Jonathan Carpenter, John Carpenter's, uh, what he had in mind with the first one. Right, and it allowed it to explore different themes than you could have done back then, you know, in terms of feminism and what is the, the, the slicer trope kind of done and starting to connect a little more to like the wider society, you know, stuff that just you wouldn't have done back then. So I think it's really interesting that the way they decided to revisit it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's two others coming out, which I cannot wait to see in theaters, maybe. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to be next year. Um, Brendan, anything else on this subject that you want to talk uh, talk about? So, I, I mean, I guess now that we've kind of established your uh, beginnings in, in, in horror, how does that start to translate to writing? You know, at what point do you say – I'm I'm loving taking this all in, but now I want to kind of be the creator. Yeah, the when I first started writing, it was uh, just to give me something to draw because I wanted to be a comic book artist, and I figured you know I wanted to draw a comic, but I needed a story. So you know when I was in sixth grade, I started drawing this simple little comic. Uh, I made my friends and myself superheroes because I figured my friends would read it that way because <laughs> otherwise they probably wouldn't read it. And uh, they they hated my art, but they liked my stories. And it used to make me so mad because like I, I don't care about the stories. I care about the art. Um, but then I read uh, an interview with Stephen King in, a, in, a, in an old Marvel black and white horror magazine. It was right after The Shining came out. And it just clicked with me that, you know, being a writer was something a person could choose to do or choose to try to do. It just never occurred to me before. And so I started to think of myself more as a writer um, I've been reading a lot of all kinds of stuff or fantasy science fiction. So I started off trying to write fantasy, but my favorite parts were always the parts with the monsters or always the parts that were darker. And in short fiction, I often was writing horror more than anything else. And just slowly over time, you know, I just kind of gravitated more toward horror. It seemed to be the kind of thing that editors and readers were responding to from me as well. So I made some conscious decisions to try to explore that more. Um, but it's, it's always been my first love. So it was gonna, you know, it was gonna pull me in no matter what eventually. 
Mm-hmm. Out of curiosity, who are some of the uh, comic artists who uh, kind of influenced you, who you, you really looked up to? Oh, uh, um, Gene Colan. I loved his the stuff he would do on Tomb of Dracula. Um, Mike Plug, I liked his stuff really well too. Bernie Wrightson and a lot of the classic kind of kind of horror artists. Um, everybody loved John Byrne back in the day when those things his his stuff was coming out. His X Men and his uh, Superman. Um, God, there are so many. I really enjoyed their work. Uh, Jim Aparo, I loved his Batman, and I could just go on and on. Yeah. I, I love Bernie Wrightson's work on um, on Swamp Thing. That stuff is just mm-hmm. like absolutely unparalleled. And uh, m- right. one of my favorites was always uh, Steve Ditko's work on Doctor Strange. Um, yeah. The, the color palette that he kind of injected into that, like really, really excellent stuff. Yeah, he created a whole visual language that's been, you know, used ever since, really. Yeah. Now, um, before we jump into your book, Writing in the Dark, um, I'm curious for when you were coming up in writing, uh, what did you, was there one or maybe a few craft on the on writing books that you really were attracted to and found yourself really taking in and using uh, their advice on for your own writing? Yeah, I uh, uh, early on started reading Writer's Digest. My dad brought home a copy. I was probably 18 or so, didn't know it existed. And so as I started reading it, you know, I subscribed to it and I read uh, Lawrence Block's fiction columns. Mm. And, you know, I started, he would talk in there, you know, about some of his, his, his how to write book called writing the novel from plot to print. And so I had to get it. And that was back when you had to clip out the little order form from the magazine, you know, and mail by street mail with a check. So the book would show up, uh, which, it was still that way today. It saved me a lot of money because I just got that one click on Amazon to buy as many damn books as I want. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, when that thing came, I mean, it was it was short, but it was packed full of all kinds of really great advice. And one of the cool things in there is he would he advised reading five novels of the kind you wanted to write and then going back and rereading them and outlining them hmm. uh, to see what you can learn from it. I did that twice. And it's amazing how much you can learn from that. Uh, but his his uh, writing about writing has been the most in, uh, has inspired me the most in terms of my own writing on writing. Yeah, I, I remember you talking about him in your own in writing in the dark, and I thought that was pretty mm-hmm. interesting. It it's a lot of helpful advice there, uh, Brennan. On this particular subject, got anything to throw in? No, I'm actually going to take us right into writing in the dark because sure. uh, your your comment on. Um, uh, kind of picking apart a favorite novel and outlining it. One of my favorite parts in writing in the dark, it comes all the way in the end. I believe it's the first appendix um, where you took a short story you wrote when you were about 20 ish and just ripped it to shreds, basically (laughs) said, not not necessarily entirely to shreds, but basically said, Here's what I did well and I didn't, you know, necessarily do on purpose. Here's what I did well consciously. Here's what I've learned at this stage and this stage and this stage uh, of my writing. And it was so cool, you know, plowing through the 20 odd chapters before it, kind of seeing everything come together. Um, So at what stage did you decide like that was going to be kind of a necessary ingredient to the book? What made what made you think of that? Uh, just trying to think of all the different ways that that people could see, you know, principles you talk about in a book in action. Because a lot of times, what you'll get in, in how to write books, uh, you may get just essays that are nice, but they they don't go into any kind of nuts and bolts detail. 
And so I was thinking, you know, should I take maybe something that was in the public domain and take a look at it? And I'm like, no, because, you know, I don't really know how that was put together. The only stuff I ever know for sure how it was put together is mine. Um, so, you know, I try to use examples of my own stuff. In class, it's weird because if you tell students it's yours, they don't want to critique it. And if you put a fake name on it and they critique it, when you tell them it's yours, they feel tricked. So in a classroom situation, you know, you can't win if you try to do that. But in this book, I, I thought, you know, if I took something uh, of mine and then I realized I still had, you know, uh, just on you know, they were written on, you know, typewriter right before PCs became a thing. I still had those things lying around and I searched around and I found one of the maybe the first horror story I wrote or pretty close to it. And I thought, you know, this will work great. And um, I also thought it would be just really interesting for me to see what I learned from it. I was surprised that it didn't suck as much as I thought it was going to. <laughs> I mean, no way in hell is this thing even close to publishable, but I could see things in it that, you know, if I was like a teacher talking to the student who wrote that, you know, I could tell them, here's some good stuff that you have to build on. Um, I also was surprised because I was, uh, it almost felt like I had lost some of that for years and had to rediscover it in terms of like writing with a really immersive point of view. Um, I don't know if I did that, if I lost that somewhere along the way, I don't know. I just remember kind of rediscovering it later in my late twenties and early thirties. So just interesting to see that stuff in there. Now, maybe this went over my head, but the cover, is that a ghost or is that something else? The little mascot? <laughs> yeah, it, it's a, it's like a, it's the, the nib of an old fashioned fountain pen okay. with a little skull at the top of it. Uh, it's supposed to be a stylized design like that. Gotcha. Oh, that's pretty cool. I like it, man. Uh, sorry, Brendan. It looked like I interrupted your question. <laughs> no, that's okay. I couldn't think of the name of it. I knew it. I knew it was that kind of stylized pen, mm -hmm. but um, I, I, I don't think I've ever written with with, with one of those, so uh, I, I wouldn't have been able to call the name to mind. Um, going, going again off that, I think one of my favorite observations was the whole thing about how you were like, I'm, I'm not really sure why. I decided this was a Christmas story. It doesn't really um, it doesn't really focus around Christmas at all. And that's absolutely something I've seen in my own writing where I kind of begin with this idea. Maybe it's a title. And then by the time the finished product comes around, it's like it doesn't you know, this this initial idea, this title doesn't make any sense anymore. And I've kind of become so attached to it that. I, I don't even necessarily it's it's too close for me uh, to kind of say, OK, that, you know, we, we need to lose that. Um, what's what's so interesting to me, too, is being able to kind of look at that work on a longer timeline. I, I have not been writing all that long um, and I'll go back and look at a story I wrote even like a year ago, a little more than a year ago. And, you know, the first inclination is, oh. That really sucks. Um, but then you can pinpoint things that you did well. And again, maybe they're not even on purpose, like um, the whole idea of writing that immersive character. Like I was doing that from a natural standpoint rather than really, really overthinking it. Um, long winded way of saying that chapter really gave me a lot to think about. I, I really enjoyed that. I think that was a very, very valuable asset to the book. I'm so glad to hear that. The um, part that I enjoyed uh, is, I mean, I like the, you know, everything I've read, but something that I really enjoyed was reading how there's like three or four different authors at the end of every chapter. Um, and I just took screenshots of a few of them. Uh, just they're short. One of them, 
by Craig Spector, best-selling author of Turnaround. And the thing that caught my eye with him was uh, he said, right from the inside out, crawl inside your characters, make us care about them living, then we'll care about them dying. That's very simple, but, you know, I never thought of it like that. I mean, it speaks volumes. Yeah, we're we're <laughs> these are fictional characters, so he's right. You know, you got to care about that, or why are we gonna give a damn if they die? We're not. Right. How do you pick? I know you said in your book that is kind of random, but was there any decision on who goes in what chapter at all? Who who get who gets paired with who? Um, other than just trying to to kind of balance it out between veteran writers, newer writers, uh, male and female, American and, and non-American, you know, whatever. I just mm-hmm. tried to like kind of stir it up, you know, and mix it up really good like that. But otherwise, I didn't worry about, you know, thematics. Like it didn't matter if they commented on something that was in the chapter or not. Uh, you know, I kind of wanted it to be its own little parallel book sort of. Oh, okay. No, that makes sense. There's uh, just one more I want to read out loud because it's uh, interesting. As a reviewer, too, man, um, by Norman Prentice, uh, editor of Cemetery Dance Publications, Electronic Books Division. The part that um, I really liked was don't self-publish unless your fiction is thoroughly polished. And don't worry if your print publisher doesn't get things out quickly enough. That simply gives you more time to have a follow-up novel or collection ready to go. Um, I mean, it makes, again, simple quote makes sense, but it's something that I don't think a lot of people think about because it's a slow process. And I, I, I know from speaking to other authors that the more traditional route, the longer you're going to have to wait. I've heard some people have to wait three years to hear back from a publisher if they even like it. So yeah, I think it's, it's, yeah, if it's a big enough publisher, that can happen. I just think it's an important lesson. It's something mm-hmm. that takes a long time to get used to. Um, I think it was uh, Sanderson. Uh, what is it? Brandon Sanderson, the fantasy writer. I heard him say something about, uh, you know, basically it takes 10 years to really see results in your writing uh, once you focus on it. Um, I've, I've only been going after seven years, and I've only seen my first professional sale in the seventh year, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure it's different for other people, but what what's your what's the number one thing that students that want to be writers what's the one thing that they kind of all fall victim to? What are their pitfalls? First, I'll tell you, ten years is what I always heard when I was coming up too. It's about oh, okay. how long it is. So, I mean, it's I mean, some people, you know, sooner, some later, but ten's average, and it was about that for me before okay. I started professionally. I sold a few small press places, but first professional sale wasn't until I was 30. And I started writing seriously when I was 18. So um, so what's the no, – I forgot your question. What's the one thing that the, the, they fall prey to, beginning writers? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. What are, what are their – and it could be more than one. I'm sure there is. Okay. What are uh, beginning well, writers' pitfalls? Yeah. The it, it No matter how much we read, most of us take in media – through visual means somehow, you know, so it's movies, TV shows, video games. And so we write from a perspective of a passive observer because that's what we are when we take in those those media. We're not one of the characters living it. So it's really hard to, to convince people that what you're supposed to be doing is imagining you are someone, someone else doing these things. And these things are happening to you as opposed to you are sitting way back and watching. Um, it's kind of like the thing that, that Craig said, you know, you have to like get in. 
get into your character's head. One of the things I'll, I'll show in class is that uh, uh, back when I could actually attend physical classes, because <laughs> right now they're all through Zoom. But one of the things that I would, and for some reason, I can't play video on Zoom. It crashes every time. But if I do like uh, in a regular classroom, I'd show the students a clip from uh, one of the Bo Jason Bourne movies, you know, and it's Jason Bourne fighting this assassin and, you know, eventually kills him. And I say, whose point of view is that from? And they, they think and they think. And you know, finally, I have to tell them it's from yours. It's from the audience's point of view. And then I show them a, a, a video from a band. Uh, I think I think it's a song. I can't remember the name of the band, but the song's called Bad Motherfucker, I think. And the video itself is nothing but point of view from like a James Bond spy trying to get this teleport device away from, you know, a bad agent or whatever. And it's like we're 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 you know, like the camera would be our eyes, basically. And I say, this is what you want to try to imagine when you write. And it, it's so very different. And then the other thing is because it's visual media that people are so used to, they don't use any other senses. They don't evoke smell, taste or touch because movies and TV can't do that. It kind of can suggest it a little bit like a, a really harsh sound can make you like, you know, runs up your back or whatever. So that's like a physical sensation. Some colors might give you, you know, I mean, if it's like a flower, you might think of a scent. But, you know, that the media itself isn't isn't doing that. And, you know, sights, uh, senses like sight and sound, there are strongest senses. But because of that, in many ways, they have the least impact on us. Mm. Our weakest senses, smell, taste and touch, anything that we experience with those senses that has to be in contact with our body. So they're very, very intimate and powerful. Mm. And plus, you know, it could be dangerous too. You know, something could be touching you that could hurt you. So, uh, I mean, if people really need to, to learn to evoke all of those and plus people's thoughts and feelings and all that stuff that goes on, we experience reality as this constant swirl of all this data that we have to figure out what to pay attention to. And the more that you can learn to write like that, and recreate that on the page. I mean, no other media yet can do that. It's one of the things that fiction can do that no other art form can do yet. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm biased, but I think writing's probably going to always be the best, man. It's just because <laughs> even if think about it, even virtual reality, surely eventually it'll be a point when it can manipulate all your senses. But I mean, like we we can picture something ten times crazier than. What we see, it's the trick in horror movies or horror books. You know, if you leave certain things out but suggest it, nine times out of ten, unless it's like the girl next door, it's going to just be more impactful if you suggest it. <laughs> right, right. And, yeah, and it's an inter it's fully interactive. I mean, you know, uh, I often describe what we do is like composing music. We don't mm. play the music. We give it to people to play it themselves, and they play it using their imagination. And so they are very highly involved in the creation of that experience where with all kinds of other media, you, you just sit there passively and it's fed to you. I mean, yeah, you're, you're feeling things inside you and responding, but you're not helping to create it the same way as you do when you read. I agree, man. And I don't know if this is a weird analogy, but for me, reading is kind of like a dance. You are the one partner and the readers, the other partner, the writer and reader just kind of have to, they have to be in sync or it's going to be sloppy. <laughs> yep. That's a great analogy. I think. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. Brennan, go ahead, man. Oh, definitely. And um, I, I love that composer metaphor. That's so mm. very true. Um, Tim, I'm glad you brought up the sensory thing. thing. Um, that that was another thing that hit me at just the right time. I um, finished writing my first book uh, probably three, four months ago, and I'm doing revisions right now. And 
I am, you know, since reading that part, finding so many opportunities to put in like multi-sensory uh, descriptors. Um, and like you said, there's so much opportunity for visual, for auditory, because that's generally how you navigate a story. And what, you know, I'm finding I'm able to kind of craft stronger uh, settings when I kind of bring in a sense that's not going to be engaged before, you know, said event happens and then add it into what's going on. Um, again, just a, a, another piece of advice that hit me at exactly the right time. Um, I did have a question for you about, uh, I think, I think it goes back into the chapter on immersion. Um, mm. It seemed to me like you spent a lot of time talking about second person narration. And as a rule, that's kind of, um, I don't know if I'd go with panned, but not everybody loves it. Is there a reason you devoted so much of that chapter to second person? Uh, uh, yeah, I write in second person. Not a lot, but I do it for short stories. I've probably sold a dozen of them. Um, it, it really creates a very interesting effect, uh, which I talk about in that section. It creates a very strange sort of distancing effect. And it really puts readers, uh, you know, it recreates unease for them. And I don't know if that works, if you can sustain it for a novel. I mean, I've read second-person novels. They tend to be short, but uh, they're still novels. And I've never tried to do it in novella or novel form. I'd like to someday. Um, but I, I really think it creates something interesting. I think you can it, – it, it probably, like, leans more into the weird than it does horror in a lot of ways. That strange sort of, you know, we're not quite sure what this is or what's going on. Um, but when I when I write like that, it's it flows like water it's my go-to when i'm stuck um i i don't know if I, I could write every single damn story as second person if i wanted to uh maybe maybe i could i kind of wonder what would happen if i just tried it for a year or something um but i know that not everybody takes to it i once wrote a, a, a one of my favorite stories i wrote was kind of a meta ghost story and i wrote it for uh, the horror writer charles l grant was editing an anthology called gothic ghosts and so I sent him this story in second person and he wrote back, this is a hell of a story, but I don't know if this is the way to tell it. And I finally met him like years later and I told him about, I wrote this ghost story for you in second person. He's like, yes, that was a great story. But that second person really bothered me. And I'm like, you know, he, he remembered it all that time. And there's just something about it that just it's, it just gets under people's skin. So I like to play around. with it. <laughs> Like I said, I, I felt like um like you talked about it a lot, but at the same time, I'm almost like in a way I'm kind of partial to it. Now, one of my um I'm relatively new to the um non Stephen King, non Anne Rice horror scene. Um, and one of the first authors who I guess I didn't even really consider a horror author at the time, uh, that I've always loved is Chuck Palahniuk, who consistently writes in second person and um does a very interesting job with it. Like I, it, to me that always, I, I didn't understand the kind of hate it gets. Like, obviously it's not traditional. Um, it definitely strays and you have to kind of nail down the tone and it certainly can't work for any story. But, um, I, I always thought it was kind of an interesting way to tell the story. And I, you know, I, I've experimented a little bit with it. I am completely with you. I'm not entirely sure how i would go about writing something more than five thousand words in it um i think i'd get repetitive and um carried away but um it's it, it's a really cool way to kind of 
approach it and understand where the story's going. Mm-hmm. I think it works really good for flash fiction because even if people they don't quite take to the voice, the story's over. <laughs> you know, so and it, I, I think it, and since you you really can't go into character and other stuff, I think in a lot of ways style has to help carry style and concept has to carry a piece of flash fiction. So just seems to me that it works pretty well for that. Yeah, um, there was actually while you guys were talking, I remembered the reviewer bit, um, and I forget who said it, but there was uh, one of the authors wrote how. It's basically, I'm paraphrasing that, it's basically never a good idea to say anything in definitive terms like, I don't like this book, no one's going to like this book, or no one's going to like this tone. And I'm glad that you brought that up, or that you have that in the book, because it's important, especially for newer people to read. Because I know when I was starting out reviewing, um, I would look at some reviewers and I'd be like, oh, they know what they're talking about, that's got to be the way, but different you know, different routes for different people, basically. And uh, that's really it. Terrible way to end that comment, but I appreciate you putting that in the book because I think it's really important for even non-newer people to the scene to have that reaffirmed in their head. Right, yeah. You know, I, I read an article once about uh, creativity, and the, the, the author was saying that we produce so many things, but you don't know what you do that might last and the example that he gave was the uh, the band uh, uh, Think Toto, who had that big hit Africa. That's still, you know, 30 years later. That was the song. That was their least favorite song on the album. They threw it together kind of at the last minute just to fill the album up, just so they had enough songs. And it's become like this giant legacy of theirs. Um, the, the premise is that the creators don't know. There's no way you can tell. Uh, you know, you may love something and nobody cares about care about it. You may think it's just something you dashed off and it may become a classic. So I think that, you know, I think it's good to kind of follow your instinct sometimes, even if it goes against the, you know, the the conventional wisdom. I agree. And imagine I know that the author is unknown, but uh, imagine the author of Beowulf. What else? What that's that can't be the only thing that person, be a man or woman, wrote. So imagine what else they created back then. I mean, before it was even publishing was even a thing. I know this is a weird example, but that that's one example where, like, you know, they definitely want to, it's what, been like thousands of years, uh, 2,000 years, something like that. No, probably longer. It was definitely longer than 2,000 years. Um, well, anyways, William Shakespeare, too, man. I'm like thinking he, I'm sure he didn't think 500 years from now people are still going to be reading my plays. And, you know, you got a list of other people, so I agree. Um, when you go into writing yourself, I'm rambling on. So when you go into your own writing, is there ever a time when you have said, you know what, I think this is going to be the one that sticks? The That happened to me, the, the, the story I wrote that was my very first professional sale. And it was weird because I was on a, I was doing a writer's workshop at a convention a long time ago. And uh, with me was Gary A. Bronbeck, wonderful writer, and uh, Charles Coleman Finley, who's now the editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Mm. And somebody just asked us, like, what was the thing you read? When did you know that you wrote something good enough that it was going to sell, like, to a professional market? And we all told the same exact story. We were working on a short story. We got, like, two-thirds of the way through. We realized how good it was. And then we got scared we were going to screw it up and stop. (laughs) And then we all, like, took a deep breath and went back to it and finished it. And I don't know how often that happens to people. Maybe it's just a big coincidence that it happened to the three of us. 
But yeah, there are times, there are some times when you, you know, you write something and you think, yeah, this is pretty good. Um, other times it may just be like bits and pieces, like this is a really cool sentence or a cool paragraph. Um, but, you know, like a lot of writers, I, I'll write something and I think it's garbage until an editor tells me it's okay. <laughs> you know, I still do that. I'm like, I get breathe a sigh of relief when the editor's like, oh, I loved your story. I'm like, thank God, because I thought that was a piece of crap that I turned in. You know, so it's some, so sometimes maybe, you know, sometimes you don't. I don't know. Most was of the time, your, I guess. Was your first, uh, your first one was Mr. Punch, right? That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then Ellen Datlow probably made you realize, uh, okay, she knows what the hell she's talking about. So it's pretty good then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She actually chose it as a, one of the recommended stories for that year. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. But the best thing that that taught me was that once I finished it, you know, and I gave it the ending that I that I felt it needed. And it was a very surreal, abstract ending, nothing like I ever tried before. You know, uh, my writer's group, I had a buddy I was, you know, exchange stories with, you know, lived in another town. They all wanted me to change the ending. And, you know, I tried and everything I came up with was horrible. And so I said, no, this this is the way it's supposed to be. I know that regardless of whatever the hell else happens to it. And then it became my first professional sale. And it's, you know, it, and then Ellen did pick it for a recommended list. So, I mean, when you feel that strongly about it, um, I think it's important to stick to your guns. How did she stumble upon your story? Oh, well, you know, she she for her for the when she does like the best horror of the year kind of anthology, she reads so widely, um, mm. you know, editors send her things, she, you know, she requests things. So, you know, I must and that anthology was called Young Blood. And the premise was that all the horror stories in it had to be written by writers before they were 30. And and so they they had like a King story and a Post story and a Ramsey Campbell story, uh, you know. But all those were done before they were 30. So that's how they got the famous people in there to, to get people <laughs> to buy the book. And everybody else were, you know, new writers. And I, so that may have attracted her attention, too, you know, because it was like basically sort of introducing, you know, a whole bunch of new writers to the field. So I don't know. I'd have to ask her. You know, uh, I, I think it's fair to say she's like the editor when it comes to horror anthologies, man. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know. Hats off to you. That's really awesome. Brennan, you got anything to add to this, my friend? No, I mean, before we kind of uh, move away from writing in the dark completely, I was actually kind of hoping you'd tell us a little bit about how it came together, how it ended up at uh, Raw Dog Screaming. And if if I'm not mistaken, is it is it like an imprint of Raw Dog Screaming? Because I know that Jennifer Barnes and John Edward Lawson put it out, but it has another name on it. Guide yeah, Dog Guide Dog, yeah, Guide Dog Books is our nonfiction imprint. Mm, okay. They, oh. they have a science fiction imprint called Dog Star Books. So, you know, they're all dogs. <laughs> Dog <laughs> is the theme that goes through it, but yeah. Um, uh, I, I pitched it to them at a world horror convention. You know, I just signed up for some pitch sessions. Um, I, I teach a writing to publish class, so I always try to sign up. As long as I've got something to pitch, I don't want to waste anybody's time. But when I got something to pitch, I always sign up to pitch it so I can practice some more and then talk to my classes when I come back. Um, they just, you know, they, they've put out such good work over the years uh, by friends of mine. They're such wonderful people. I'd always hope to work with them. So I was thrilled to pitch it to them. And I was really, you know, really glad that they uh, wanted to take it. And and then when I wrote it, I mean, some of it was, you know, adapted from my blog. A lot of it was written brand new. Uh, the stuff in my blog is revised. Uh, but it all poured out of me like water. It was it was really weird. And when I was done, it was like I couldn't quite remember what I wrote. <laughs> like it was automatic, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, I remember I was on uh, 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 Hunter Shea's Monster Men. 
podcast. And he says, what about those two questions you asked all those writers? And I was like, yeah, I don't remember what they were. <laughs> I know I asked writers two questions. What, what were they? Uh, so it's just, it was really weird. It was, a uh, it was almost like, uh, I, I just dumped everything I knew about horror writing out of my brain and it took a little while to fill back up. You know, and speaking of Hunter, uh, we talked to him last week and he, we brought, cause at the end of almost every interview, we asked, what are you reading? And at the time I said, writing in the dark. And, um, at one point I was, and I, I'll tell you this too, for me, I feel like this is going to be. One of those books that, because I hear about from people that are newer to reading, that, and I'm not knocking it, Stephen King's on writing is like the golden child for mm-hmm. what you should read. I, I, I don't know if that's true. My sample size isn't very large, but I think that you absolutely have a chance at contending because of Hunter said it best. It's not the words I'd use, but uh, he said. On writing by Stephen King is like an old man telling stories to you, whereas Tim Wagoner's writing in the dark is ways that he's helping you learn how to write and learn the craft. And I mean, I, I kind of agree with that because with on writing, it's part autobiography, part lessons on the craft, and they're more, they're different. Yours, you, t- you tell you put your stories in here, but. They're so closely interwoven. They're interwoven with lessons. So I don't know, man. As someone that's been writing a lot less than you, seven years, that's it for me. A lot less time than you. I I found it to be incredibly helpful. And it's something that I know me and Brennan are going to return to. I'm so glad to hear that. Thanks. I mean, I wrote it to help people. That's the most important thing to me. So I'm glad to hear it works for you guys. Yeah. Um. And Brennan, is uh, is that it for on writing, or are we good to go to the next? I, I guess I will throw in one more thing, so you can stop asking me if that's it. But uh, <laughs> usually we text this, so I apologize for us. <laughs> no, no, no. Sounds unprofessional. Um, I. <laughs> I would just kind of echo what you said about um, how the anecdotes were more woven in and related to the topic at hand rather than just I'm going to devolve into into a story that takes us very far from the main point. Um, I, I like how we kind of get that, you know, here's what an issue for newer or even veteran writers can be. Um, here's how I've seen it and approached it, you know, complete with a story or even an example from your own writing. Um, and then the exercises is huge too, because if there's, if there is, you know, if anybody's listening to this, looking for a book to kind of walk you through the beginning steps, um, or really just take your writing to the next level, you know, you can find a topic that interests you. And there's all sorts of stuff that's like instead of just, again, like you said, the essay format, it's and you can try this and you can try this and um, do, do this third thing and, and, and see what you notice about, you know, putting the character in this predicament and changing the viewpoint. And um, it, it's just fantastic. And if you were to sit down and use it almost like a textbook um, and speaking of, I do love the fact that it literally looks like a textbook because of the size. Okay. That was Jennifer's idea. Yeah. Um, to make it look like a textbook. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but if you were to sit and use it as a textbook and study your way through it, I think that you'd like, you'd just learn 
so much, you'd immerse yourself and you'd come out like a brand new man or woman. Um, so yes, Patrick, I am ready to move on if you'd like to steer us in a new direction, Captain. Of course, uh, I would absolutely like to talk, and I'm glad that I saw this. Uh, I jumped on Twitter a little bit before we talked, and I'm glad I did because I saw that uh, Weird Tales' next issue, 364, has been announced. I saw that Lynn Hansen's cover was the one for this. Uh, it's freaking awesome. Uh, I love it. It, it kind of looks like it would belong back in the uh, 30s or 40s where it's this part woman in a dress, part crow or ranger. Uh, it fits the title. And then I saw that you're in this uh, in this issue, Tim. That's exciting, man. Can you tell us about that? Like how were you approached by Jonathan? Or can you tell us anything about the story that's going to be in it? Well, sure. I, I can tell you that the cover is based on my story. Whoa. So, yeah. So you can probably tell I, us whether it's a crow or a raven then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a bird. I can tell you it's, it's a bird. It's a bird, okay. Uh, yeah, you know, and I, I, it's such a weird thing that, you know, you write stuff and then you concentrate on the next thing and so you kind of forget what you wrote. So, for you know, when I saw the cover tonight, I'm like, oh, that's a really cool image. And then, you know, Lynn had posted somewhere. It's like, oh, yeah, I was inspired by Tim's story. And I'm like, well, of course it was. I forgot which story I put in there. Um, Jonathan contacted me and asked, asked he, and they had some room for some flash fiction. He's like, hey, could you write me a flash fiction story? And uh, the story's called Feathers. And for uh, I pro- I'm sure I, I used this in Writing in the Dark somewhere. Uh, I always talk about like exploring your childhood fears because when you're they're all so unique. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, afraid of the dark or spiders, but really little kids can be afraid of the weirdest stuff. And when when I was a toddler, my sister was a toddler. One of us is afraid of feathers and the other was afraid of band-aids. And that's what my mom used to tell us. And I can't remember which is which, but you know, when Jonathan asked me, I'm like, okay, finally, I'm going to write a story about one of these damn things, feathers or band-aids. And so I picked feathers. And so that's the name of the story. And it's just, it's a weird piece dealing with, with bird, bird stuff. <laughs> the cover gives you a pretty good idea what it's about. Um, I can't remember. It's probably written in second person. I'd have to go look, but I'd be surprised. <laughs> Since it's a piece of flash fiction. I heard uh, somewhere that uh, writing in second person for flash fiction is effective. Yeah. Yes, for, I think so. For bird stories, uh, Paul Tremblay wrote one of my favorite weird tale stories ever. I think, I think I hope I'm not butchering the title, but about the birds uh, in his latest collection that came out last year. I don't know if you two read that, but it is pretty damn cool. Yeah, he's a genius. <laughs> and he's just he's a such a soft-spoken guy it's uh pretty funny big super duper soft-spoken now i just last thing about weird tales um do you know when it's coming out because i have not seen it yeah um uh november 13th maybe um okay. i think i think something like that that was the date that, that jonathan sent us in an email oh okay that's next month that's amazing <laughs> Um, Brennan, I have one other book that I wanted to bring up, but I didn't want to interrupt if you had anything else similar or if you want to segue elsewhere. Yeah, sure. So, um, Tim, one thing I wanted to talk about is, um, tie-in novels, Mm -hmm. something that you've kind of, uh, made a bit of a business of, and you've written, um, novels for the Alien franchise, uh, for Supernatural, 
Um, and I have a lot of questions about that. Uh, how do you get, let's start with, how do you get involved with something like that? Yeah, usually you need to have already published, you know, a couple novels probably, and traditionally publish them because what editors are looking for is, you know, can you, or, or can you collaborate with editors? And then you also have to collaborate with whoever holds the, the license for the property. Um, can you, you know, take direction from them because they'll, they own it. So they'll tell you what they, you know, you can do this with Sam and Dean or you can't do this with Sam and Dean. Um, and can you hit a deadline? Because a lot of times with tie-ins, you've got like three months to write them. Uh, one of them I did like in three weeks, I think. Uh, because it's, How long was that? Yeah, that was uh, that was for um, a novelization I did. It was Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage. <laughs> and I basically didn't sleep for uh, like a week uh, to get it done. But so the and those things are like set in stone, especially with like novelizations, because they come out one week after the movie. So it's you've got to get it done. And so if you've already published your own novels, they know you in, in a traditional publishing arena, they know that you can do that. So that helps. At that point, you know, maybe you meet somebody at a conference. Maybe you just kind of send them a cold email. Um, maybe you ask a writer that's published with like Supernatural to say, hey, I'd like to do that, too. Can you? Let me know who your editor is, and if you already kind of know them, have been connected to them on social media for a while, met them at a conference, they might introduce you. Um, if you've written something else for a, a certain publisher, one of the editors might say, "Hey, we got a tie-in for you." Uh, if you got an agent, they may say, "You know, go around and say, hey, my client's interested in tie-in." So there's lots of ways to do, it. and sometimes you get a gig just because somebody else bailed out at the last minute. My first supernatural yeah. novel—that's how I got that gig. Got another one that way too. So it's it's all kinds of different ways. And you don't have to be a fan of the property. Nobody ever cares if you know anything about it. Fans hate this, but it's honest to God true. They care that you can write a book. And, you know, they figure if you don't know it, you can learn it. And I've been watching Supernatural since it started. So, you know, and I saw Alien when it first came out. So I most of the stuff, you know, I've been a fan of uh, the novelizations I've done. I've seen they were all they're all they've all been sequels. So I'd seen the movies beforehand. So I don't think I've ever had to do one where at least I wasn't, you know, somewhat hmm. a fan of the property but no they never ask they don't care <laughs> I, I see that the triple x one's 336 pages so you had to get all that done from first draft to ready to get published in three weeks yeah and then they cut a bunch of it out because they said xander cade's a man as he's a man of action and has no thoughts he doesn't think about anything so <laughs> they took out a lot of the immersive stuff i put in Follow-up question. How dare they insult Vin Diesel? <laughs> they, also, they also took out a scene I wrote that uh, tied together like the the triple, the first Triple X movie and the second one with, uh, I think it's got Ice Cube in it. And uh, it was basically a zombie outbreak I put in. <laughs> because I wasn't sleeping. I just threw stuff in there. I also mm. almost put in a like a, uh, an epilogue where uh, Xander Cage met like uh, his character from Pitch Black. It was just supposed to be a joke or something. <laughs> my wife talked out of it. She's like, there's no way in hell they'll let you. But... So, so it's I basically really like, the, it's like the end of Deadpool where he's right, just... Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. She, talked me about it. She, she was wise. What did your wife say? Sorry, I was being rude and laughing boisterously. I, know, I, just, I just said, I, I told her what I wanted to do and she's like, no, don't, don't do that. <laughs> you are sleep deprived you are not making the best decisions in the world right now that's and she was right what's i just what's, I, I imagine a universe where they published that and accidentally you know unleashed a uh tim wagoner 
Vin Diesel shared universe or something like that. That would be awesome. That would <laughs> be you, awesome. Could you imagine that movie? I love. I Pitch Black is fucking awesome. That yeah, I love that. When it came out, I first was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> but it's just so addicting. Vin mm. Diesel's fun. He's he's. I don't know if a lot of people remember this. He's in a lot of movies like Saving Private Ryan. I mm-hmm. I just uh, I think that'd be fun, man. I never thought about that. A Vin Diesel universe. I, I'd sign up for that. Paul <laughs> Walker. <laughs> Paul, Paul Walker would have to be in it, though. That might be a problem, man. Um so with uh, w- with really any of them, but, uh, you know, Supernatural definitely comes to mind because there's a uh, kind of a rabid fan base with that. Did you did you do anything in that novel that made people upset with you? I could see that being an easy way to go. Um, no, you know, the only thing that, that I get sometimes if I you know, read reviews and I try to read them all because I want to learn from them. I know a lot of writers stay away from them, but. I think if I can learn something that help, helps my writing, I want to learn it. But, you know, I'll be reading them on Amazon, and one person is like, oh, this he does the best. His Sam and Dean are closest to the show. And the next review is, he doesn't know Sam and Dean at all. I don't think he's ever watched the show. And it's, you know, everybody has their own, you know, world in their head. Even though it's on TV, I mean, in, in their head. You know, they have a, a supernatural. They have a way Sam and Dean are, the way they would imagine a story going. And so, you know, my books are just one way. And so you kind of have to, you know, I know that not all the fans are going to like everything, but I've never had anybody email to tell me I was terrible. I've never had anybody at a convention come up and say I did a bad job. So I am sure some people probably think that, but overall the reviews seem positive and the editors keep asking me to write them. So what's so far been, so your, good. What's been your step favorite. in the right direction then? What's been your favorite tie-in? My favorite tie-in is it's a novelization that got bumped back a year because of COVID, and I can't tell you what it is because I signed oh. an NDA. <laughs> but it bumped, it got bumped back almost exactly a year, and that's all I'll say. Can I pretend it's The Matrix? Because that's my dream oh. tie-in, and like you're a good writer, so I'm just going to pretend you wrote it. You go ahead and pretend that. <laughs> you, you pretend that. Campfire Macabre. I, I saw that you are also in that too, and I am happy mm-hmm. to selfishly bring it up because we are uh, TOC neighbors. And that, awesome. man, the table of contents for that off the top of my head is like um, V Castro, you. Um, wow, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Sonora, uh, I know she's Andy, in that. Andy Call is in Andy there. Andy Call, yeah. There's. Hi, my. I'm drawing a blank on the spot, but there's a lot of big names in there, and it's, it's not even done. He hasn't even announced all of them yet. Yeah, I thought it was really cool how the that there were the different sections yeah. of it. Uh, so you have like different themes you can kind of choose from. I thought that was really neat. Yours is in the woods, right? That's right, and it's in second person too. Everybody <laughs> thinks I might ever do. We just happen to be talking about it. I swear I've only done about like. Less than ha- less than a dozen stories, and I've published almost 200 stories. On less than a dozen have been second person. But yeah, that we've, we've talked a lot about it, so I'm thinking otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I swear. I got a weird question to ask, Pops. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see for audio listeners, I can see behind Tim. Yeah. He's, he's got a big collection on his uh, bookshelves, amongst other things. Godzilla action figures. Yeah. That's prominent. Um, I like Pops. I got a few myself, but I want to talk about yours. You're, I think it was yesterday you posted something, and when this airs, it'll be a week from 
now. So um, from whenever you got it, but uh, you got the operation. Um, That's right. The guy, in the, <laughs> the guy in the operation board game. I didn't even know they had that one. Yeah, I think it's a new one. I, you know, I'll, my wife says I'm addicted, but I'm not. I can stop whenever I want. But you know, <laughs> I'll cruise through, like look for the new pops or something. And they they have like a, a, a several that they did based on like game mascots or whatever. And when I saw that, you know, when that thing came out when I was a kid, it was just horrifying. You know, you got this guy lying there. He's wide awake. You know, he's got these open body cavities and you're supposed to remove organs. One of them is his heart, like you're going to kill him or something. And then, you know, if you touch the sides, the whole damn thing, you know, makes that horrible kind of, I don't know, noise and it all just jumps and everything. Yeah, it's awful. And so, you know, when I saw that, I'm like, you know, most people wouldn't think of that as a horror image, but that stuck with me all these years. So I'm like, I have to get it and put it with my other horror ones. And in my head, he's not smiling, is he? He looks horrified. Yeah, he is horrified. And I think they call him Cavity Sam, so it's like Body Cavity Sam. So it's just like, it's, it's just awful all the way around. Holy shit. If you think about board games and how fucked up they are, if you translate it to adult language or adult messages. Uh, another one I'm thinking of is Mousetrap, but some people don't give a shit because, mm-hmm. you know, it's in their words, just mice. But yeah, it's a whole, <laughs> the whole point is to, you know, ma- kind of not get caught but it's fun to and i don't know board games and kids uh cartoons are pretty twisted um i got a i got a new uh new kid a first child infant and the shows he watches are the usual like blues clues and whatnot but there's some in there that i'm like hmm feel like if you wrote this in a horror perspective it would have to be some kind of psychedelic induced nightmare (laughs) yeah yeah, that's it. As, man. You, I, as you were talking, it occurred to me that somebody could do like a soft franchise with like board game. He's kind of whacked yeah. out board game. Things. Oh, my God. So you, you put somebody on the table for operation and, you know, the <laughs> hero has to cut something out of him or whatever and try to keep him alive. That's That'd great. be awesome. Somebody I w- in Hollywood. Do- I would love that board game. Um, the pop set I got, a few of them that I like is the Big Daddy from um, – the the game uh uh my god it's it is on the tip of my tongue i am horrible tonight uh the video game where it's under the ocean in rapture um bioshock there we go mm-hmm. uh, i got the big daddy for that winnie the food because i love that cartoon <laughs> And then for all you sports fans, I got one from uh, the New England Patriots, Tom Brady, Gronk, and Edelman. So I don't have a whole lot like you, but I, I could. And there's one that caught my eye, the Washington crossing the Delaware River, Washington and the uh, Continental Soldiers. They, they got pops for everything, man. Like that's not even that's not even pop culture. <laughs> right, right. Brennan, how about you take us away, away from uh, pop talk? You don't want to talk more about pops? I got nothing. I, That's why I'm asking I, you. You know, I actually I don't own a single one. I think uh I think one of my sons has a Mr. Bean one, and I think that's it. I think that's the extent uh in my house. Um so Tim, I want to talk about your back catalog, which is absolutely mm-hmm. massive, by the way. Um <laughs> yeah. so w- one thing I like to ask, you know, people who uh you know, if we if we have somebody listening who hasn't read one of your books, there's a couple ways we could approach this question. Um, so let's start with what's 
what's a book that you've written that you feel like deserves more attention that you you wish got a little more love that's a great question um wow um i i don't know you know i guess most writers would be tempted to say all of them right um there you know i, I did a novella for um dark regions several years back called deep like the river and i really enjoyed that i thought it was a really cool story turned out really well um and it i think that'd be cool if people read that um yeah so I, I might pick that one i also wrote um i did it for sam hain and now it's back out with crossroad press and sam hain folded a book called the way of all flesh which was my weird zombie novel where, you know, the, the zombies are in their own way conscious and they see the world, you know, they see themselves as sort of normal and humans as sort of like demons. And it's just a very strange, twisted, surreal kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I thought it was, it was so much fun to write and try to do like a, that kind of uh, take on zombies. And I just, but I think it'd be interesting if more people read it to see what they thought about it. That's was awesome. uh was I'm Legend an inspiration for that particular book that story? No, not for that one. Um, probably the I, I love that book, uh, but probably um when the the zombies I mean uh, when the cranberries came out with the song Zombie originally because the, <laughs> there's a line that says What's in your head? And when that I first heard that back in the 90s, I was just like, that's so cool. And you know, their uh, Marvel Comics had the uh, their zombie character. It, those were written when it was written from his point of view, it was always second person because he doesn't have a brain. So I was always fascinated by the second person narration for that. But I just thought that it would be really cool to, to kind of, you know, get into the psychology of what's going on inside there. What kind of world are they trapped in? that We might not know. about. God, that'd be horrifying. <laughs> Is that something you do fairly often? Um, grab a line from a movie or from a song and just, completely run with it or is that kind of an isolated incident uh, sometimes you know i just if something strikes me i'll just type it into like a the notepad on my phone and sometimes i don't remember where i heard it from and then when i, I i'm looking for just to, to start a story or when i'm putting a novel together novel novel pitch i'll just look through that and see which images and concepts are in there and um and then i'll use them and it, sometimes i just don't even remember where they came from but yeah i, I collect ideas years ago i clipped out a story about a frat house in uh, Ohio State University that had an electric chair on the roof. And I'm like, I, I want to use that in a story someday. I've never found a place to put it. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's you know, you're, you're just like you collect odds and ends, you know, kind of like a, a junkyard dealer and eventually, hopefully, make something out of them. Did it have a lightning rod attached to it? Was that power source? It never occurred to that. It occurred to me to think of that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think it was just a replica, but nobody nobody knew why it was up there because, you know, it's a frat house. People come and go over the years. So they just kind of discovered it up there. Can, uh, you, can you imagine if that's how you got in? Just like you, during rainstorms, <laughs> you're like, well, we'll let the gods decide on you. <laughs> right, right. You're, if you come back down in the morning, you're in. <laughs> We've got our story, gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So there you go. Okay, let's start writing. <laughs> Halloween. Tri oh, wait. Uh, Brennan. Oh yeah, no, I got I got a couple more follow-ups. Yeah, yeah if, sorry. Uh, if you don't mind waiting. Um, How dare so, you, Patrick? <laughs> so you know, j jumping off that back catalog question. So besides, you know, something that maybe you wish got more attention. Uh, what about if you have somebody who's totally new to your work? Um, 
regardless of I like this kind of story or that kind of story, what is kind of the one book you'd send them to? Uh, probably Necropolis. It's a it's a urban fantasy that is set in a world of monsters, an extra dimensional world. Earth's monsters about 400 years ago left Earth when they saw humanity was becoming very numerous and you know starting to develop in ways that were kind of dangerous to them. And, uh, you know, I have an, uh, an Earth cop goes through a portal there chasing a suspect. He dies and is resurrected as a zombie. He needs uh, uh, regular applications of preservative spells or her rot so he can't leave. So he just stays and becomes a private detective. And, you know, there are three <laughs> books in the series, and I filled them full of everything I loved about monsters and horror, you know, in my life. But even though it's got like a dark kind of edge to it, I mean, it's 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 mostly just harmless fun. Uh, and people seem to really enjoy it. Um, it's the like an idiot. I ended the third book kind of on a cliffhanger as I was writing it. An idea. This happens to me a lot where I'm writing it and the idea for the last scene pops into my head as I get there. And so I wrote this thing kind of as a cliffhanger. And then the publisher decided not to bring out any more books. And so I get emails all the time from people saying, you've got to write more books. And I'm like, what happened to him? Like, uh, if I can find a, a publisher that wants new ones, maybe someday. But. But yeah, that one people seem to enjoy pretty well. And, you know, it's like the horror aspect of it is not going to disturb anybody. So it's just fun. Is uh, Godzilla your your favorite monster film icon? Well, I, I'm, I'm really interested in any time that you take an icon and you take it through like, like different permutations, different versions. So I mm. love like all the different versions of Batman and Superman. Uh, the, the different ways that characters have been shown in movies. And that's happened to Godzilla more than any other, uh, I think. And so, yeah. you know, I love all the different kinds of Draculas. But yeah, so I love Godzilla as a kid, but I'm just really interested in all the different ways Godzilla gets interpreted. I'm not sure if this is a, uh, if I'm in the minority here, but I really like the 1998 version of Godzilla. I was. I was nine when it came out, so I don't know. Take that for what it is, but I enjoyed it. It was fun. He's over there. I got him over there. He's he's one of the versions. How, I enjoyed you, that movie. It's fine. Do you have all of uh throughout all the decades? Uh, I don't think so, but I think I got the majority of them probably. Is a I know I've got of... one from like every because they divide them into like different categories. Like every few years is a different category of Godzilla, and I know I've got all those represented. Okay, yeah, because I see <laughs> I got a friend that collects them. There's a there's a lot. Yep. Brennan. Oh, the, let's talk about Godzilla more. What'd you think about the uh the most recent one? I think it came out maybe last year. I don't know. Brian Time has Cranston. no meaning anymore. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that's the uh King of the Monsters one. Oh. Oh yeah, I, I loved it. Lots of monsters. And what else do you need? What else yeah. do you need? Oh, my favorite thing the monsters don't get to see too much of they're just kind of hinted those are always fun especially when they were just names on a map and it's like oh there's this one in australia and i'm like what's that one like but yeah it was a lot of fun the action was great my wife's not a big horror fan but she likes movies like that so it's you know it's horror that we can share so that's kind of fun what about um, cloverfield yeah yeah cloverfield was great yeah the, the first one was great the second one was good the third one not so much i didn't think <laughs> Um, I don't even remember the third. What was the third one? Paradox, right? Oh, yeah, that's like right, yeah. Netflix, yeah. It had some cool stuff, but they just didn't do enough with the weird, cool, bizarre stuff happening on the space station or whatever. I really wanted to see it. I haven't seen it yet, the second one. Doesn't have that? Doesn't that have John Goodman in it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's I really guess. good. 
I don't know how connected it is to the Cloverfield universe. I think they just decided to do that as a marketing thing mm-hmm. to a movie they'd already created pretty much, but doesn't matter. It's a really good movie. So it's, it's really worth watching. The performances are great. Another good movie that Goodman's in that I don't hear many people talking about is uh, Red State by Kevin Smith. Oh, I still need to see that. Um, if I didn't know that Kevin Smith wrote and directed and probably edited it, I would not think that that was his film. It doesn't feel like anything he's ever done. Mm-hmm. It's I just I think it's fantastic. It gets dark, man. It's real horror. Um, do you know what it's about? Yeah. I, yeah, I just never have a chance to sit down and watch it. Yeah, there's so many things, man, to watch. Um, now, I would sense it's October, and uh, when your episode comes out, it'll be one, two, three, four, five days before Halloween. Uh, I was wondering if you want to talk a little bit about Halloween. Sure. Well, first off, first off, do you have any memories from when you were younger about Halloween that really stick out, good or bad? Yeah, it's one of my first memories. It's, uh, I wrote this as an essay for a cemetery dance anthology called uh, Halloween Dreams 2. This was the second one of those. It was, I was, uh, I don't, I was probably less than a year old. I swear to God, I remember this. Wow. Um, my mom put me in like a little pink bunny, you know, like onesie with, <laughs> you know, with the ears on top. And she carried me to a few houses and I had no idea what the hell was happening. I mean, there were all these little things walking around within these bizarre faces and the, the people would make a fuss over them when they came to the door. When she took me to the door, I remember people making a fuss over me and I could not figure out what was going on or why they cared. It was just all such a mystery to me. Uh, and, you know, I don't have a lot of memories from when I was super, super young, but that is one of them that stick with me all these years. That's pretty damn cool. Um the weirdest thing that's happened to me when I was young, and I don't remember the age, was uh, I grew up in a town called Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Um, mm-hmm. Some people know it due to the Bridgewater Triangle. People mm-hmm. like Hunter Shane knew it. And he talked to the – he's friends with a dude that coined the phrase, which I thought was pretty sweet. But um, Of course he a, is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's into all that. Yeah. Stuff's awesome. Yeah. So there is a – really old prison in uh, Bridgewater. And um, there was a prisoner that escaped on Halloween. <laughs> so also I remember it was like my mom and parents were in a panic. Um, they ended up finding him in his like mother's house. And he, 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 you know, he got arrested again, but it was pretty weird being a kid in my Ninja Turtle uniform. Just like, Hey, I, I just want candy. But thinking of it as an adult, like, Hell no, I wouldn't let my son out then because, you know, I don't know who it is. It's Halloween. It could be anybody. <laughs> right. It's true. Uh, it's like, have you ever seen the movie Hellfest? No, what's that about? Yeah, it's like, it's a slasher movie that takes place like in a big park of where they do Halloween. And of course, you know, everybody's in a mask and so is the slasher. And so, and people <laughs> expect to see, hear screams, you know, they expect to see blood, fake blood. It's like the perfect hunting around. Uh, it's, it's just kind of a throwback to 80s movies. It's really good. Is When did that come out? Like recently? Uh, a few years ago. Hellf- Not too long ago. Hellfest. F-E-S-T. That's right. Yep, that's right. All right, I gotta look into that. Uh, you know, I just read Slash 2 by Hunter Shea. And, mm-hmm. uh, man, that guy can that guy can write a good slasher. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, as far as Halloween goes, though, is there any traditions that you practice or is there as far as your house kind of a two question uh two branch question 
also uh your home do you decorate it um you know somewhat a little bit um my family when i was growing up never decorated it a lot so mm. and it, you put it all out you got to put it all away and you know in a weird way halloween for me is kind of strange because it's cool that the rest of the world catches up with me but it's like you know where's your where's your 365 a year commitment come on <laughs> <laughs> it's lifestyle so you know it's almost in some ways like amateur night where it's like everybody's like yeah yeah sure you're scary i get it and so you know i you know we have like uh, every year i buy a couple more little props that we put out or you know skulls or you know something fun like that some things the kids remember because my girls are both in their 20s now mm. but some stuff they remember from when they were little um when they were really little i didn't have anything too scary because they I didn't want to, you have to be careful. I introduce that stuff to little ones. Um, so no, you know, I don't think I have any, any particular traditions like to give out candy to trick or treaters. I have no clue if anybody's coming this year, if they should come or yeah. I don't know. we may just put out like bags of candy in a bowl out there and let people take it. If anybody comes up, we haven't decided yet. Um, so yeah, you know, no, I watch even more horror movies throughout the month. If I can revisit some of my favorite old ones, like one year I might go through all the old, uh, you know, uh, uh, American International Pictures, Edgar Allan Poe movies, or, mm. you know, I might do Hammer movies or, you know, watch all the Friday the 13th movies or something like that, that I might not normally do throughout the course of a year to celebrate. Mm. But, and, you know, nothing, nothing very big. That's a good point how you brought up Amateur Hour, because what other genre has like a national hot? Well, actually, it's not just national, you know, it's international holiday where everyone's down for one month to just celebrate the scary and spooky stuff. But it's not just that. It's it's the only holiday dedicated to the imagination because you can dress like anything. It doesn't have to be scary. You get a chance to role play. And, that's true. Uh, the scary stuff is fun and it sparks your imagination. But mm. that, that's the coolest thing about it. Every And every other holiday has real specific rituals you have to follow. But besides trick-or-treat, Halloween doesn't. You know, you dress up and then there's trick or treat and then you can do whatever the hell else you want uh, for Halloween. So it really is, you know, it really feeds into people's imagination or feeds off of their imagination in ways the other holidays just do not. That's true. Christmas, uh, you know, that can go many ways. And then Thanksgiving's a little (laughs) controversial, depending on who you ask. And then uh, Valentine's Day, you uh, usually spend a lot of money on um, meals that usually costs half the price at restaurants. Right. And there's, and there's the stuff about it being like a manufactured holiday by like the greeting card companies and well, talk. So yeah, but they don't do that for Halloween. No, the only other fun holiday in my eyes is uh St. Patrick's day being a guy that grew up in uh right near Boston. So there you go. I do love the fact that it's really the only other holiday that I can think of besides Christmas that, you know, it, it falls on a particular day, but you really get the whole month as soon as that calendar flips to October. Mm-hmm. And for us in the community, let's face it, we hit it, you know, sometimes mid or beginning of September. Um, right. We're, uh, if not January 1st, um, <laughs> you know, it, and it really spans that whole month that it's, you know, all of a sudden acceptable to uh, leave the house in a Jason Voorhees shirt or something like that. But, uh, you know, I'm kind of with you, though. Uh, decorating here is typically sparse. We might put up those, you know, cobwebs with the glow-in-the-dark spiders or something fun like that. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be at Lowe's or Home Depot, and we'll see the 20-foot-tall inflatable werewolf. And then we'll see the price tag and realize that we'd also like to be able to pay the electric bill this month. And it's 
you know, good for those houses for going all out. I just don't have that in me. Yeah, yeah, same. I mean, I tried it when my girls were little, but like, you know, putting up the Christmas lights is really a pain. And so, <laughs> yeah, I, I brought my son to check him out and he he liked them. And then the one that wasn't scary it was an animatronic. He just started losing his shit. I'm like, okay, okay, let's walk away from that. I don't want to scar him before he's one. I would like him to be into horror. Do your girls like um like horror? Or are they readers? Yeah, you know, my oldest likes to read, and my oldest likes to. She's 25. She'll watch horror movies with me. Hmm. Youngest, not so much. You know, she's more more visual. Um, she's happy to watch a horror movie, but she doesn't have any special you know liking for it. Okay. Um, Brendan, why don't you hop into one of those questions that we ask our guests towards the end of every show? So, so Tim, what do you uh, have coming out either later this year or early next year? I mean, we just put out writing in the dark, so I'm kind of being mm-hmm. a pain in your ass here. But um, <laughs> you're, you, you know, you've done a lot of stuff with Flame Tree. Forever House was mm-hmm. really, really a cool book, um, oh. kind of hitting that um, – elder cosmic god it, it, it kind of defies description if i'm honest but uh it was it, that's it, it, that's a good thing because I, I can't compare it to another book i've read that hits the exact same notes and it's absolutely freaking brutal at the end <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes it is that was one where i had to make the uh i'll, see, I'll show it to you i had to make the the cup of death right here i don't know if you can see it the because uh, I couldn't decide who to kill off in what order, so I, I put all their names in the cup and I drew one. And the first person that came out was the only person I didn't want to die first. So I put her name back in the the cup. I shook it up and I gave it to my daughter, and she pulled out the same damn name. And I was like, fine, fine, <laughs> I will kill it. off this character first. Then I have to do it. Um, I've got another book from Flame Tree coming out in March. It's oh. called Your Turn to Suffer. It's about a woman who. Uh, a mysterious kind of cult keeps telling her she needs to confess and atone or suffer, but she has no idea what they think she's done and what she's supposed to do about it. And they start dismantling her life more and more uh, as she's trying to figure this out. And I don't know when it's coming out, but I've written another one for flame tree called we rise again, or we will rise. I can't remember which one we settled on, but it's about a ghost apocalypse. It's like ghosts appear all over the world and uh, just start causing all kinds of havoc. You know what? Now you guys brought up Flame Tree. Um, we, me and uh, Brennan, have an ad in the beginning that will run before this episode starts. But just a reminder: look out for the information that we provide in the beginning of the episode before we talked with Tim about uh, Flame Trees Live and Spooky, their first creepy carnival that's out October thirtieth, four p.m. Eastern, eight p.m. British time. Uh, more information in the beginning. Just a reminder, uh, that should be a lot of fun. Are, uh, actually, I don't know this, uh, Tim. Are you going to be a part of that in any way? Because there's a lot yeah, of names yeah. on there. Okay. Yep. Going to be Hunter and I and I'm trying to remember who else. A couple other writers. We're going to be doing a, a panel on uh, horror movies. Talking about, the, talking about movies. I know Valley Castro will be there, too. Yeah. Yeah, so there are going to be a lot of people. It's going to be really Looks cool. Looks like uh, Doing John Everson and J.G. Fairdy. That's right. That's right. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that well, panel now, too. I'm reading it. Yeah. That's that's exciting. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. 
Flame Tree Press is a really interesting. I'm, you know, man, I'm glad I got to kind of bump into them last year. Uh, I don't know. They're just they're exciting. They're one of the you know everyone's got their favorite writers, editors, publishers. They're I'm gonna just say they're one of my favorite publishers as a reading as a fan of reading. And um, I mean, look at they got big names to to smaller names, and we talked with V uh, a few months ago. And speaking of Isla Castro, she's got a really exciting book coming out next year through them. Yeah, I'm looking forward. To it. Yeah, man. Um, now, did he answer your entire question there, Brennan? <laughs> Were you looking yes, for more? Yes, he's good. He's good. No, <laughs> is he okay? Actually, <laughs> I'm just messing with you, Tim. <laughs> and, and that goes to Apocalypse book. That sounds really good. Yeah, hopefully it'll be good. We'll see. I hope people like it. I haven't heard from Don yet. Well, I don't know. Like I told you, until until my editor reads it and tells me if it's not a piece of crap, I don't know. Especially because I just, you know, I experiment a lot when I write novels and try all kinds of weird stuff. And I never know if it works. But but I'm also looking forward to that novelization coming out, I assume, next October. And I'm looking forward to being able to tell people that I wrote it. I'm like so excited about it. But that's the way it goes. Yeah, speaking of Don Hunter, had some interesting stories about him, man. He sounds like a like a pretty fun guy once you start talking to him. Oh yeah, he's great, and he's a really, he's a really good editor. And I really think that uh, you know you were talking about Ellen Datlow earlier. I think Don has done a lot too, a ton. Yeah. Yes, to, yeah. For horror to really promote it as a genre and bring so many different new authors and different types of authors, uh, uh, you know, into it. So. Um, yeah, I'm thrilled. I've worked with him at, you know, Leisure and Sam Hain and Flame Tree, and I'll follow him anywhere. Yeah, man. I know he's worked with a lot of big names. Uh, for me, Don and Ellen are probably in their own category. Uh, I don't, I'm not like the most educated guy on editors, so maybe my opinion doesn't matter a lot on this, but from where I'm standing, it's those two. There's a lot of other good ones, of course, but. I mean, it's longevity, too. And they've got it. Um, yeah, I'd add in Tom Monteleone's Borderland series, too. Okay. Since, yeah, since he's always been trying to find things that, you know, push the, the, the boundary of what the genre is. Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a good point that you bring up. Um, now, what are you reading? Uh, lots of Ramsey Campbell lately. Uh, just, you know, there are just some novels of his that I didn't hadn't read over the years and i'm just trying to going back and for whatever reason you know he's i'm a very moody reader once i kind of just start something if it's you know i'm into it i'm into it for a while and then eventually i might move on to something else yeah but right now it's ramsey campbell novels he's he's a fun guy to watch on twitter he's he just comes off like a gentleman and i and it's weird the society that we have on social media, everyone's ready to be snarky and jump down each other's throats, but that's not his approach, and I, I really like it. It's refreshing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, Brennan, what are you currently reading? Um, I am about 75% through um, the anthology that Gemma Amore, Laurel Hightower, and Cena Paleo are putting out. We Are Wolves it's coming out in sometime in November. I'm not actually 100% sure they, there's a release date set for it. Um, but it is really something. Um, from the time that, from when this episode comes out, um, Brian Keene had 
posted a blurb for it, you know, maybe a week before, a couple days before. Um, and he loved it. He said he was really floored by it. Um, putting words in his mouth a little bit. That wasn't his exact words, but he loved it. Um, and I can absolutely see why, you know, every, every story is very, very strong. Um, it's, it's vicious. It's they, they, they go for the jugular, um, throughout and it's, it's, it's really cool. I'm loving it. And I'm about to start, um, Cassie Daly's story, friend of the show. Um, I read an early version of it and it was fantastic. So I'm very excited to see what the final version looks like. Nice. How about you, Pat? Uh, I'm just reading Haley Piper's The Worm and His Kings. It's a novella and what, I mean, Haley's an excellent writer, but uh, what even made me more excited, I was like, okay, well, there's a quote by Mary San Giovanni on here, and that is, her blurb is, uh, one of the best cosmic horror novels I've read in eons. So coming from the queen of cosmic horror, I would say that's pretty uh, pretty ear-perking, a very noticeable thing when she says something like that, same as Brian King, you know, it's worth noting that that's a book to chase and so far i gotta agree with it it's 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 got these descriptions in there of this one character named the named gray hill it's just uh it's eerie stuff now tim is there anything that you would like listeners to know before we uh call it a night oh i i don't know i can't i've never nobody's ever asked me that <laughs> Just, just listen, listen to this show every time it comes on. Listen to every episode because it's awesome. Can't, you can't do it not in your life. Uh, well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so, so now I'm throwing off. Uh, so this episode will air on October 26th. So if you're listening to the, this episode now, um, that means you have exactly one, two, three days until – we have part one of our Halloween special with Michael David Wilson, and the following day will be part two, concluding a two-part series with Bob Pastorella, where we talk about things such as their watching, their upcoming novel. Uh, we talk about their individual writing careers. This is horror, um, how Bob got involved with that. And a lot of other things. Uh, Michael David Wilson's episode was a little silly because, uh, some knuckleheads that host the show had a few drinks in them. So um, <laughs> Michael David Wilson felt very comfortable to the point where he told one of the hosts, me, to shut the fuck up. <laughs> which, which we took it with a laugh and continued talking. But it was a fun time. Um, Tim, we really appreciate your time here, man. It's, it's been a real pleasure. And it's been interesting to talk about your book, um, Writing in the Dark, because... I mean, like you said, when you read it, it's kind of like in your head. But then when you talk to the creator, I mean, you kind of reassured a few things. Um, there's nothing in question on my end, but it was just cool hearing you kind of reiterate a few points in your book. Um, I think it's really helpful. I mean, what I said, I think it's going to be one of those go to books for on the craft writing. Uh, I got to say thank you for doing that, because the more books on the craft the better the better books that will come in the future i hope from it so i thank you for that and uh brennan thank you as always for being my co-host listeners thank you for participating in this show again you can follow us on twitter at dead underscore headspace 
we are in your mind.